Son of the Beach, starring Jamie Bergman as B.J. Cummings, Roland Kickinger as Chip This week on Plot Points Podcast, the amazing director, writer, producer, David Morrison, in part one of our two-part interview. This is Plot Points Podcast. This is Plot Points Podcast. Um, I am here this episode with uh, producer, writer, director, all-around uh, amazing media guy, David Morgison. David, welcome to Plot Points Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for uh, what you what you may not know is, David, by the time this drops, David will have already done a a uh, in person event for us at the uh, the C three coffee shop that we do every third Wednesday, and so I'm sure you're gonna you know knock them down. I'm sure at this point we're 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 singing your praises. So uh, I was I was I was spectacular. You were. <laughs> I was really good. If you'll recall, I uh, availed myself of your website, which is uh, morgason.com, which is m o r g a s e n dot com which I will put in the show notes, obviously. But um, you, you have some just hilarious stuff uh, on, that, on that website, and I, I, I'm sure it's indicative of who you are as a person. So um, let me – Thank you. Yeah, let's do the writerly thing and, you know, start at the beginning and, and talk about uh, where you came from, how you got into this business. You know, I mean, these are – I think there's an endless fascination here for me. I really don't care if my audience likes it or not because it's my <laughs> podcast. So. Of no, course, I'm kidding. Everybody loves the uh, the origin story. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, uh, how you got in, how you you know did you fall into this? Were you were you forced into it by uh, overbearing parents? What uh, what uh, what is the the origin issue of David Morgison? It's quite the opposite about the parents. Okay. Um, they did everything in their power to try to talk me out of it <laughs> going into show business. Um, my, it's, it's funny because on my mother's side, my grandfather was actually in stand-up comedy. Mm. Um, he played what was called the Borscht Belt. Um, <coughs> oh, my God, the Catskills, of course. The yeah. Catskills and Miami Beach, those were sort of his things. And he was also in like the Yiddish theater oh, and wow. he was, uh, he was like, um, you know, I'd always hear stories. My mom would tell me that like, you know, like she'd, she'd wake up, like, you know, she'd get up for a glass of water at one in the morning and, she, and, and there in the kitchen would be my grandfather holding court with like Walter Matthau. Oh my God. And, uh, and Jackie Mason, oh. you know, people, and people like that. So Leg- legendary uh, comedians. Yes. Yeah, in fact, uh, back in the 80s, there's a, there's a New Yorker article that Walter Matthau wrote like a tribute to my grandfather and how much he, uh, hmm. uh, yeah, he, he it was sort of his mentor. And I was surprised because I really didn't know those things till I was an adult. Like when I was a kid, he was just my, you know, my grandfather. But right. so he was, you know, and he was... <laughs> He was crazy. You know, he was just, he was, uh, he was a real character and, 
you know, my dad's side of the family was extremely conservative. My dad's father was a butcher and in Brooklyn and, and you know, they were very, very grounded. And so it was like, I do not want you to go and take you know, your grandfather, your mother's father's line of business. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah. So I was, I, I, so that sort of came from that. And I was always fascinated by comedy. You know, I was like obsessed with, just obsessed with it. Mm-hmm since I was a kid and my mother loved old movies and I watched old movies. And oh my God, mine did too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I, you know, I'm, uh, so I, you know, I grew up on Long Island and, and then I, you know, it's like when I was a kid, my, then my parents, uh, they got a divorce. So I, I became like, I had the distinction of being the child of like the first, uh, broken home in town, which is delightful, <laughs> really, to have that distinction. Uh, hey, my my parents are the first ones to get divorced here. What do you think? You know, uh, and so that was, you know, it, it, but what that did really was that, like, I just got lost in, you know, trying to entertain myself because mm-hmm. it was so kind of upsetting at the time. So comedy. Uh, how old were how old were you at this point? I was fourteen when they got the divorce, and okay. um, so my dad. You know, he left. He basically, uh, and he got remarried. And my mom retreated to her room for several years. Oh. And uh, and I, I raised my two siblings. So, wow. in fact, it's interesting because I just recently wrote, um, working on a pilot about that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, um, kind of like a messed up Wonder Years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of like... Uh, the anti-wonder yeah, years, yeah. It's the anti-wonder years about this dysfunctional um, person, this family. And so that was like, but, you know, it had an effect on um, kind of what I wanted to do because I just mm-hmm. sort of lost my, I, I had to entertain myself because I was very unhappy. You know, I was very angry about sure. what was going on. So it's like, you know, just I needed to kind of make myself laugh, you know, and, so I, w- I was really into comedy and um, I even, you know, I, I just had this 10, I even, I remember I was like 12 years old and I sat and I, I, I wrote a letter to MGM <laughs> <laughs> a typewriter, you know, like I was like, I, I, I had just seen 2001. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, hilarious, right? No, um, it's just <laughs> not a comedy, but still, uh, it, you know, it did kind of change my life. In oh, it's inspira- it was inspirational, yeah, of it, course. Yeah. It, it changed my life. Even though I was a kid, I kind of understood it um, as much as a kid could. And I, it just impressed me so much. And it was MGM that, you know, made it. And so I went home and I wrote MGM a letter. And it was basically, it was so generic. I wish I had a copy of it, but, you know, the nature of it was, the gist of it was, uh, dear MGM, I live here in Long Island, and um, I'd love to just come work for you. Uh, <laughs> anything that you need, you know, I don't know what you need done, but I'm available, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm pretty flexible as right. far as I'm, what I can do. I'm 14, I'm untrained, but you, I could really do a great job at whatever you'd give me, right? Whatever, whatever it is, you know, right. I'm willing to learn on the job. You know, I, I you know, something like that. It was, inc- and it was sort of like completely implausible. I mean, wh- how would I get out to LA? I was in Long Island. <laughs> right. I was a child. I mean, who would let me go? You know, it was just like ridiculous. But I did send the letter, 
and was shocked when a couple of weeks later um, a letter arrived, you know, with the the little lion MGM lion logo on the envelope. You uh-huh. know? Uh from MGM to David Morgison in Long Island. And it was like, uh, dear David, you know, thanks for your interest in working for MGM. Um, you know, we could certainly use somebody like you, but at the moment, you know, you may want to just stay with what you're doing, finish actually growing up, <laughs> becoming an adult, going to college, and uh, then give us a ring, you know, uh, when you're out here. And ironically, you know, decades later, I did find myself in the waiting room of MGM. Oh, my God. And, and I, I sold them a uh, my partners and I sold them a script. Mm-hmm. We sold a feature script to MGM. And it was weird because I hadn't thought about that letter until I was sitting there you know, looking, you know, I was sitting in MGM going, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, it's been through like 18 owners since the first time that right. I sent the letter, but it wasn't lost on me that I was, you know, there I was sitting at MGM. <laughs> Now, now that would make, don't you think that would make a great movie if the response was, um, we would love to have you come out and they had no idea how old you were, uh, <laughs> but they were willing to take a chance and you as a, as a 12 or 14 year old, however old you were, go out to LA and take that journey and become an MGM executive or, or whatever, but you know, like drawing a really cheesy mustache or something like that to make you look older. I think that would make a funny movie. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, in retrospect, I've, uh, I've met with some uh, executives, studio executives that are probably not much older <laughs> than uh, 14. Um, uh, here we go. Don't get me started on that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true too. Yeah. All right. So you're you're uh, you're young, angry, uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, and filled with uh, talent. And uh, you're you. Where did you did you did did that exp- did um sorry I'm stumbling. Did that um, manifest itself in high school? Did you did you were you one of the AV club guys or did you it, was it through? <laughs> <laughs> It's really funny that you say the AV Club guy because uh, that was uh, that's a good guess because that's a, you hit it on the nose. Um, I was on the AV Squad, embarrassingly, um, <laughs> in high school, so I was like really old enough to know that it was a geeky thing. I was a sure. senior in high school, oh. and that actually figures into my script. Um, but I was, uh, yeah, I got in when I was in school. Um, yeah, I got into lots of trouble. Um, <laughs> You know, like when you live on Long Island, you know, and it's like you're going to school and you always have your different social groups. So right. one of the group, one of the groups are the, you know, the uh, sort of the greasers and, you know, they're just like these tough guys and not terribly, um, you know, they're not Nobel laureates, but they're, <laughs> uh, they're, they're tough and, and, you know, they, they pick on me just like they pick on everybody else, but I got out of it by just being funny. So I wouldn't uh-huh. get beat up. You wow. know, like I would, I was, I was really good at, I had, you know, I had a knack for impersonating people. So mm. I would, I would, I would be able to do every teacher in the school. And so one of the guys, you know, they're about to like punch me. And then we like, I said, Hey, wait, Joe, hold on. Hey, this guy could do Mr. Atridge from English. Listen to it. Just listen to it for a minute. And he would go, go ahead, do it. And I'd start doing this impersonation. And he would go, that is good. 
Yeah. Nah, let's leave this guy alone. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I re- yeah, and I did a, then I did a school talent show in ninth grade, and what I did was I hired all of them to be on my crew, and oh. then they left me alone forever. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I ended up in the principal's office a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, I was there a lot and, uh, you know, put on shows and, and yes, I was in the AV squad and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, our AV squad was different though, because we were like, um, we kind of ran the school. Really? Um, and yeah. Yeah. We were like, um, we were sort of like a shadow government, um, <laughs> Like the way the way it happened is like we had we had this assistant principal, um, Mr. Labianca, who we called Mike the Fist. You know, we had like mafia names. We love the Godfather, so, you know. We love the Godfather. We grew up on Long Island, going to diners where the next the guys like over like at one booth were like the, the Sopranos, you know. So we grew up in that environment. So right. Mike Labianca, our assistant principal, was yeah, Mike the Fist Labianca. Mike the Fist, oh my God, Mike the Fist, and Mike the Fist basically anointed us, you know, his crew, the AV Squad, because there was another assistant principal. And he hated her and we were his eyes and ears. So he gave us keys to everything and he gave us our own office. And we basically had like all this power. We were these geeks, but we were like the shadow government. So the Illuminati, the AV Illuminati. We were the AV Illuminati. Yes. Yeah. So it was funny, you know, because we were like, we, we were not normally empowered because we were sort of geeks, but um, we, we, you know, we did have certain things that we could, uh, we had the power to do. And we had all the cameras and computers and all these things that, you know, we could hook up, you know, we could, we could spy on people. We could do all kinds of things. That's, that's what a fantastic idea for a movie. Let's let's, so you should work on that one instead. So where did you go to college? I went to college at Ohio university um, and loved it. I actually lived in Cleveland for a while. Oh my God. I'm sorry for you. I live. Yeah, that was uh I've made a number of mistakes in my life. Uh, I have to say that that was one of them. Uh, I lived in, after that, I lived in Columbus, actually, which I I actually liked. I had a much better time in yeah. Columbus. Columbus I mean, is great, yeah. After being carjacked in Cleveland, I guess anything looks pretty good. So. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll mention where I'm from. I'm going to cut it out of the podcast, but I'm from Oh, okay. Yeah. So just down the street from Cleveland. Yeah, just down the street. Cleveland, um, Columbus. My original focus was in radio. So I was in, when I was in college, I was on the radio and that was my real, that was what I did. I was really super into radio. I mean, I, I, um, I loved producing radio commercials, but I was on the air. I played music. I was on the air. I envy you. Yeah. I, that's been a dream of mine forever. That sounds great. Wow. Were you, I mean, I was, were you in, uh, were you on the radio for the college or for, uh, private, a, a different, like a radio station? Um, I started out, I was on, um, I remember I was on, I, in high school, we were lucky enough, the school district had a radio station, a, relo- a low power FM station. I did some stuff on there, but in college, um, one of the reasons I went to Ohio University is because they had a huge telecommunications center and they had, um, they had a 50,000 watt FM station mm. uh, and a 500 watt AM station mm-hmm. and a TV station. And it was really, you know, just, it was very professional. 
you know, for mm-hmm. college. So I was on both AM and FM stations. And so, yeah, people, you know, it, people could hear us. We did, you know, top 40 we did uh, on the FM was country. And so it was, a, it was a great experience because it really did simulate commercial. It wasn't a typical college radio station. It mm-hmm. simulated, this is what like a commercial station sounded like. And so it helped. And I thought that's what I want to do. You know, I would want to do radio for the rest of my life. And I was sort of doing it. It's because my dad so did not want me to go into show business <laughs> that I figured like radio was like, you know, it was sort of show business, but right. I could, you know, maybe slightly more grounded than going out to Hollywood. Right, right. Did you study theater arts or anything in college or did that come later? Did that did that urge to make videos and be funny and be a writer and all that? Uh, was that in college or did that come later? Yeah, it came a little bit later because there was uh, there was comedy going on at Ohio University. Um, there was even a radio show that featured uh, improv comedy and stuff. You know, radio, I loved television. I loved uh, like TV news. I loved all of that stuff. So it was really mm-hmm. on broadcasting when I was at Ohio University mm-hmm. and you know, I did stuff that was funny, you know, the stuff that I did, like I produce all kinds of funny spots and things, but the, the, the desire to, to really get into comedy was like when I got out, like I worked, uh, years after I got out of college and I was kind of finished for a while with radio, I worked at a couple of ad agencies, small ad agencies in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I would write funny ads and funny spots and then at some point it was like you know and I was a production director also at a radio station in New York uh, uh, after I was in advertising and that was uh, uh, I got to do funny spots and it's like I like the funny part of it I just don't like this you know the commercial part I wonder and so I started doing commercial parodies and I found a company that um, syndicated radio comedy to 75 stations across the country so they paid me to do like all kinds of parodies of tv promos and commercials and i had this whole kind of troop of people that did this Mm -hmm. and we were on we were on in la we were were on all over the place so i kind of like dropped you know I, i started making a living doing radio syndicated radio comedy um and i remember i was supposed to have a meeting at some point with Howard Stern mm-hmm. <laughs> it sort of timed out that way. Um, I guess one guy at NBC and Howard was at NBC at the time. And they said, why don't you meet with Howard? He needs a producer for, he's going to do a network radio show and he needs a producer. Wow. And so uh, I was supposed to meet with him. And basically the, the day of my meeting was like, he got fired. So, <laughs> WNBC. 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 Yeah, he he literally got fired, and everybody. And I remember I was uh, I was working this guy. You know, people said, you know, that's probably just a rating stunt. You know, I'm sure he wasn't fired. He was just still planning on going in to meet with Howard. And so, like, okay. And so I was just like, right before I was leaving to go to the meeting, I I called. I kept calling the office over there, and finally. Uh, Baba Booey and uh, Gary Dillabati. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Baba Booey answered. Baba Booey, Baba Booey, Baba, Baba Booey answered Booey, the Baba. phone. 
and and I said, hey, uh, hey, Gary, it's Dave Morgison. I just want to make – I heard that uh, you guys were – we're fired, but uh, people said that's probably a stunt. And so that, you know, I'm still planning on coming in today, right, to meet with Howard. And he said, man, I wish it was a stunt. I'm just cleaning out my office right now, <laughs> cleaning, wow. putting stuff in boxes. Howard's already out. He's outside. And uh, so that was that. Um, um, man, did that did that crush you? Was that, I mean, obviously yeah. Howard Stern, you know, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, being into radio and everything, and you know, Howard was really sure he was he was sort of an idol. I you know, I loved listening to him, and I, I listened. There's this guy named Don Imus. Imus, sure, Imus is famous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Imus, you know, who came before that and who had a famous feud with Howard. Right. Uh, but Howard was, uh, you know, I had no idea that years later I would get to work with Howard. Uh, oh, wow, great, and, yeah. And I mean, I, I uh, co-created a TV show uh, for FX and uh, Howard was w- my partner in producing. So he was oh. my, he, we pitched it to Howard. So Howard ended up being a friend of mine and, uh, and a colleague in television. So wow. that was like years and years later. So I got to basically tell him over drinks. It was like telling the story that, oh you know, I was supposed God. to at some years ago and, you know, he was a radio guy and I was a former radio guy. So we had a lot of stuff to talk about, but it was really interesting that I got to work with him so many years after, you know, being in radio and work with him in television. Yeah. <clears throat> now was that, was that son of the beach? Yes. Yes. Okay. Son of the beach. All right, cool. Yeah. That was, that was pretty, pretty profane. I could see where, where Howard would be, would have <clears throat> had his hand in that. Um, there was some some pretty challenging material in there for the year. What was that? Two thousand or something like that? To yeah, I think we were. Um, it was like we started working. We started pitching, I think, in ninety nine. We're on till like two thousand three. We're on three seasons. Okay, so we had three seasons, and we had um, really pretty good ratings mm-hmm. and and surprisingly good reviews for you know, I you know. Profane is certainly one adjective, uh, one way to describe <laughs> it. Um, there are people who would have send, said that. Um, I prefer um, edgy, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, out there, uh, irreverent. Irreverent is, irreverent, is uh, yeah, yeah. I I, I prefer uh, irreverent. Although some people definitely saw it as profane. I had uh, back east. I uh, my uh, my one of my wife's aunts, you know, basically said, Oh, you're the one who does pornography. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's really not, believe me. Well, I mean, for the time, you know, now it probably wouldn't make a blip in the radar, but back, you know, 18 years ago, um, that was when, when I mean profane, I don't, I don't mean it as a derogatory phrase. I mean it as being out, you know, being, like you said, irreverent, I think mm-hmm. is better, but out there, you know, it was uh, it was broad comedy. It was you. You guys seemed to do what you wanted to do. Where, what uh, what network was it on? FX. Okay. okay <clears> we right. were the first. We were the first show on FX that oh. was. We were. We, I mean, it weren't the first show on FX, but mm-hmm. we were the first. After uh, there was new management, and mm-hmm. that's when they decided to really put money into FX. At that I point, see. it was it was on, but it was all the slow budget stuff and. You know, we were the first show that 
And they also had just decided that they wanted to target uh, the demographic of males, 18 mm-hmm. to 34. So we came along, you know, at a good time. Yeah. Put a bunch of babes in bathing suits, and you got the you got the demo, right? Uh, yeah, it's babes in bathing suits, and lots of inappropriate um, jokes, yeah. and double entendres, and uh, and Howard Stern. Uh, you know, it was really, it it was stuff that I mean, I think you said it was would be considered it wouldn't make a, a blip today, but um, in some you would think that, but I. Uh, I'm of the mind and my partners are of the mind that, that uh, we probably wouldn't be able to sell it today. Oh, really? Um, because, uh, because of the political correctness? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, 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 we agree that it's like, yeah, we, we couldn't sell that show today. I mean, you can, you know, it's available. There's two volumes are out there. You can buy the DVD sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's uh it would be a real challenge to sell the show, at least the way it, you know, that we did it today. Uh, you know, and you hear people saying that. I heard several interviews with Mel Brooks talking about that he, mm. he couldn't do Blazing Saddles today, um, which to me is one of the greatest, you know, comedies of all time. Yeah. And it's all about context and the times that we live in. And right, and right now, you know, Son of the Beach would probably, you know, not, not get sold. Yeah, the the what I meant was as far as the comedy, as far as the um, like I I watched the one with Gilbert Gottfried, um, and there was a line that said, um, "Are you going to blow the chauffeur?" And it was a female chauffeur or something like that. But I mean, I'm I'm saying that from a you know nudity language um, that the kind of stuff that was. I mean, I can't believe they say you know shit on t on regular. <laughs> yeah, it's like wow. Um, but you know what? I we just did my last podcast. I just did a uh, a focus, a profile on Mel Brooks, and I would love. I don't know. I I mean, why would anybody want to remake that film? It's perfect. It's brilliant as it sits. But you're right. It probably could not be made today because of the words and the uh, the social context. So, yeah, he he really and and he feels very strongly about it. You uh-huh. know, he's not like I'm guessing. You know, him. It's like it definitely. We there's no way we can sell it you know, today, the way, the way, the way it is. And I could see that. I mean, it's like, you know, just sort of the liberal use of the N word, for instance, um, in in the film, I use it a lot, a lot, Uh, but, and it, you know, and other, and all kinds of other, you know, inappropriate jokes about rape and things like that. It's just a different, it's a different time. Well, so being the the brilliant radio star you are, you're segueing into something I wanted to talk about. Um, and uh, let me let me introduce it a little bit. But I want to get back to your career too, and so we can come back, we can roll around to it. Um, so I'm a big fan of musicals, and I was watching um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and there's a song in there. the 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 film is based on a story by Plutarch called "The Rape of the Sabine Women." Uh, about Romans who stole wives. And so when, I mean, scholars pretty much agree that the word rape is not used contextually in this story as violence, but uh, but as kidnapping. But the song, Sobbing Women, um, and I, I sent you the link to have you review it if you if you had a chance, I don't know, but could something like that be made today? Could you, could you with the Me Too generation or the Me Too movement, 
is that a possibility? Uh, and is something like overboard, uh, which deals with, uh, really non-consensual sex because she, the first one, the Goldie Hawn and, yes, and Kurt Russell one, she doesn't know that she's not married to him. And even when at the point where they have sex, uh, she's under, she's still under, they're, they're in a loving relationship, but she's still under the impression that she's his wife. I mean, are those, are those challenges uh, for writers today that that have to be overcome, do we have to really be that that sensitive to the Me Too movements, as far as what the underlying um, point of it is? Yeah, it's it, it is kind of a, a conundrum, generally speaking, um, about what to do. I can tell you that um, I went back and looked at some of the scenes from the original uh, film Overboard, the original mm-hmm. version of it, and. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see, you know, the problem. I could see the issues with it. Uh, you know, especially there's, you know, the hospital scene when she's, or Russell shows up, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the thing is like, she wasn't like unsure. She seemed very sure that that was not her husband. Right. You know, it's cause I don't know this guy. I've never seen him, you know, she's really insistent. And he kept saying, no, I am. And, you know, he basically got to take her home and, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and he, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, they, uh, they have sex and it, it is, it is very strange to watch it now, you know, right. uh, and, and it is, I could see why people would squirm and, and, you know, they did a remake, which is completely different, you know? Yeah. I, I haven't seen it, but it's with Anna Ferris, right? I think, um, I think so. I think Anna Ferris was in it. Uh, it was, um, and I think they, what they did was they reversed the roles. Right. right. Uh, That's right. You're right. Absolutely. And they made it very, uh, sort of socially, you know, just acceptable for the times for now. I don't know how it did or how successful it was, but I think you're talking about, you know, the original overboard as a romantic comedy, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a romantic comedy. Yeah. And, uh, it does involve, I mean, it, it really, even though it may not fit the definition of rape, it, it certainly is uh, deception. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, he's really deceiving her, and it's uh, yeah. The term, the term, I, the millennials use because this came about through two, actually, two different classes, two, two different sets of millennial women. The the term they used is rapey. Not rape, but rapey. It's sort of rapey. Um, yes. I don't know that that mitigates it, but it certainly gives a, a, a different slant to it. It's like sex under, you know, uh, fake circumstances or what, whatever. And, and the article I wrote puts, points out that we all deceive. I, I know it's not the same thing, but, um, I mean, as a, you know, we're, we're talking about comedy here. Do you have a different, is there a different standard for comedy than there is for drama? Could, could you mitigate or not mitigate? Uh, could you say, well, look, I'm, I'm trying to make a joke here. I'm trying to make a point through a joke here. Uh, or is the same rules that basically applied it to comedy writers that they do to drama or, or horror or anything else? Uh, I, I just think generally speaking, it's about context. Mm. Um, I think with comedy, uh, look, I, I'm of the mind that really anything goes, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in, in comedy, in terms of comedy, it's like, you know, there, there's no real lines. It's like everything's fair game. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
everything, there's nothing that's not fair game, I think. Uh, I think it just depends on the context, you know, and in comedy, you know, who ends up, uh, who ends up winning, you know, who's your protagonist, who ends up losing. That's a big thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you think about, uh, uh, you know, films, for instance, that, you know, if they make, if they make sort of like a, a, a rapist, like a hero, you know, it's like, that's not good. Right. <laughs> There's nothing right. good about it. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it, 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 I think it depends. I mean, it's, we're talking about satire and we're talking about blazing saddles, for instance, right. Blazing saddles, you know, it, yes, it is. It's full of the N word. It's got so many appropriate thing in inappropriate things in it. Um, but at the heart of it, it really is satire. Yes. You know, what, they're, what they're doing is that it's all really the expense of the white establishment. You know, the right. people that they're, – they're the idiots. They're the ones who are ridiculed. In Mel Brooks movies, I mean, yeah, you got Hitler and these people. But he's ridiculing them, and he's ridiculing bigots. He's ridiculing right. – it's like all in the family. And, the, you know, it's like uh, Archie Bunker. They, they talk about – I mean, you know, he, he was kind of a horrible – person but he was shown to be kind of an idiot and i think that's the context you know you're not glorifying right right who say stuff like that you're saying you're pointing to him and saying you know this guy this guy is an idiot and he's a bigot and so whenever i watch you know i have friends who are you know who are black and who love um, on the family and they love blazing saddles because mm-hmm. they understand this is satire. Right. You're coming down on the right side of things. Uh, yeah. It's writing that illuminates through exaggeration. So um, of course you have to go there, right. To get that exaggeration. There's no, there's no pussyfooting around that kind of context. So you have to, you have to go there. And also, you know, there's always a risk. There are some people who, watched all in the family for instance and um thought archie was a real hero oh god <laughs> you know, they, but archie bunker wow you know he really tells it like it is right he, yeah that's that guy's t- singing my song there you go yeah <laughs> yeah but but you know for the most part for the most part he was seen as a ridiculous of course there may be people who go to other movies and yeah, there are always people who are going to like root for the wrong side. Some morons <laughs> going to stand up going, yeah, go. You know, I'm just like, no, dude, you don't get it. What's going yeah. on here? You know? Right. Serial killer rule. Yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there are other things, and there are so many things that are really of their time, you know, and there was mm-hmm. like Song of the South, you know. Oh, God, a, yeah. Right. Movie, which was, you know, which was, uh, you can't even get a copy of it. I mean, you can probably, there's ways to get it, but, uh, you know, it's not issued officially, you know, right. by Disney. Right. And speaking of, speaking of rape scenes, it was interesting. I was watching, you know, one of my favorite comedies is Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, sure. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, um, where George McFly, Marty's dad, is the hero, you know, because his, basically his, his girlfriend, his wife-to-be is in the car with Biff. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what Biff's trying to do, right? I mean, he's not just trying to kiss her. You know, he's really he's he's uh, sexually assaulting um, Lorraine, right? And and he's telling you know George to go away, you know, and he doesn't, and he punches Biff out, and he's the hero. But 
you know, it's never mentioned or anything, but it's sort of like, it's clear what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy, you know, um, they just don't really reference it, but you see what's going on. Um, yeah. The, the underlying uh, intent is to molest her uh, against yeah. her will. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just find it. I mean, I'm a teacher. I teach screenwriting and I find it. Uh, I have to really watch some of the things, not only that I, that I say, but the things that I assign. Um, so the, you know, this, it's a different reality. And, and just like, you know, if you watched, if you watched F troop, for example, when you were younger, uh, you, you couldn't do F troop today because it's insensitive to native Americans. Um, you know, there's, it's just a changed world. We have to, I think as writers and, uh, certainly you as a producer have to be more sensitive to the material that's being released. Um, and what audience it's going to find. Um, cause today's social media just devastate any, you know, you can terrorize somebody through social media. So, well, you have the whole Apu controversy. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Is it comedy or is it, are you, are you glorifying a stereotype? Right. Yeah. Um, let me take a quick break here and just say that I'm talking to a writer, producer, director, David Morgison. You know, I want to get into some of your uh, Jimmy Kimmel stuff. I, I watched some of the videos on your website, which is morgason.com, and I just I just howled. Uh, the David Blaine one had me in stitches. Hold on a second. There's Somebody is interfering with my... Somebody's calling the somebody. prize line. What yeah. are you <laughs> We're not giving it away. No. Let me... I got to. Sh- I, I just have to hang up on him. So we have a call. <laughs> a caller. Go ahead, caller. You're on go the air, ahead. caller. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Iowa. You're on the air. Go ahead, Larry King here. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. Anyway, as I was saying, the the videos are hilarious. The David Blaine one just had me in stitches. I I don't know who that actor is, but he just did such a great job on that uh, that. Uh, the look into the camera. I just some wonderful material there. Uh, why do you make, were you making those for Jimmy? I know you worked for Jimmy Kimmel live, right? Yes. Uh, as a director. Okay. As a director. Uh, yeah, the Morgerson.com site. Um, you know, I have a bit of a quandary. I have like two websites, uh, and I'm, and like a, a Vimeo, uh, site, which is actually probably the best because it includes writing, producing, and directing. The Morgison.com site is primarily directing. Mm. Um, I've had, the thing is, like, I've really had several careers, um, and directing is one of them. And mm-hmm. the, the David Blaine thing was, uh, that was a series of viral videos, which I don't know, uh, we were like, on the, uh, we were like pioneers when we did the first one. The first one was done like 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. which was really, you know, shortly after the advent of, uh, of YouTube. That was really early YouTube. We, we had some early YouTube hits, like the Blaine videos in general must have like 150 million, 200 million views. Uh, wow. You went know, cumulatively. Wow. Several of them. And that, those were all guys from the Groundlings, okay. Um, which is the uh, a comedy troupe here, and it's in uh, in L.A. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I would say most of the talent on SNL comes from the groundlings. Yeah, I recognized a couple of the guys from uh, SNL. And I, did you ever see the movie? Uh, it's on Netflix about the beginning of National Lampoon. Uh, it's called A Stupid and Futile Gesture. Yes. That's wonderful. But yeah, you can see that they came from improvisational troops, right? Yeah, SNL is always, um, they recruited people. Like uh, uh, at the beginning, it was like Second City. Right. And uh, and the Groundlings. In fact, even the founding member, founding uh, first cast of SNL, uh, Lorraine Newman, was from the Groundlings. Oh, I didn't know that. The okay. Other, yeah, he, she, was, she was from the Groundlings, and she was in the original uh, the groundlings was sort of like in the early seventies that they were created. So she was in the original, like one of the founders of the groundlings. And, um, you know, and then later on, it's like, you know, Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, um, all of these people, Pee Wee Herman, all these people, uh, come from the groundlings. And that's where I studied with the groundlings too. Oh, and that's okay. where, uh, most of the connections that I have today are really thanks to that, um, those people, mm -hmm. groundlings. Uh, um, so a, a lot of them are from there. So the guys in, in, uh, especially, um, Mikey day, who is now on SNL and he plays, uh, you know, Donald Trump jr. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and he's, uh, he, he's really a talented guy. I did a, a bunch of viral videos with Mikey. I was actually working. Uh, I was, I was one of the few people who actually had the luxury of being paid a salary for doing these videos. I was, uh, I was working at HBO, mm -hmm. at the time, uh, HBO digital, and they made me executive producer of this uh, comedy website that they had along with AOL, um, short lived website, but they said, okay, you're executive producer. And I said, oh, great. And it's like, what was an executive wow. producer at a website? And I start, so I basically went to the groundlings and uh, did my, uh, you know, I, I watched some sketches that on the groundlings. It's so like, what would work here as a viral video? What can I take out and shoot? You know, mm -hmm. I could open it up and shoot it. And the showstopper was really the David Blaine they did it on stage uh, right before the intermission. And I had been to many, many, many groundling shows over the years, but I've never heard such incredible like laughter <laughs> as I did after the David Blaine thing. And then it's like, I talked to those guys and said, Hey, you know, let's come on down to HBO next week. I mean, and let's, let's do one. So that's what happened. And that uh... became, that was a real phenomenon. I mean, I, I, it was very strange for me because I was producing them and I had directed before. I mean, he's mostly a writer, but I had directed and we really didn't, you know, for these budgets for the viral videos didn't have like, you know, it was HBO, but it's not as if they were giving us game of Thrones budgets. They were, right. they were viral videos. So, uh, we didn't have a director. So it's like, you know, I've directed, I, I could direct these, you know, and the guy said, and the guy said, well, you realize, you know, I said, okay, so we'll cut here and go, you know, from the alley to the guy's apartment. They said, no, no, we can't do any cuts. We can't have cuts because no magician worth his salt would ever have cuts because uh, that's cheating. You could right, cheat. So right. each of the Blaine videos that we did, the conceit was that there were no cuts. Wow. There, was, there were no transitions of any kind, and there was nothing digital about it. It was uh -huh. all just a five-minute, one continuous shot. And how, how did you get the guy to float? Did you have a crane or something like that? In the one um, video, and he floats, and then he's on the roof. 
Yeah, I've I'm unfortunately signed an NDA. No, oh, okay. Uh, no, I no, I haven't. No, I I, now, I think now it can be told. I think okay. we, kept it, we, we kept it a secret for a long time. Like we all agreed, like let's never tell anybody. But I think now we can because yeah, Crane. Wait, wait, wait. We're breaking it here live on uh, Plot Points Podcast. Our exclusive. Uh, how did they put the guy on the roof in the David Blaine video? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think now I don't think anybody would get too upset. That was a long time ago already. Um, but people, uh, what's funny was that, like I said, I was working in HBO, and the guy, the guy called me into his office, and he was a head of production for the entire HBO, mm-hmm. and he said, "Okay, I need to know how you did that." <laughs> and he goes, "I said what?" And he goes, "I've been." I've been uh, running production for 25 years. <laughs> and he goes, now I do the budgets here and I happen to know we did not give you money for a crane <laughs> for this viral video. So you must tell me how you did it. So this was, you know, my boss. So obviously I, I really didn't have a choice. So I just showed him a picture. I showed him a picture of, what was like a um, a mop handle and a, and hanging from the mop handle were like a pair of pants, oh. pair of jeans <laughs> attached. And he goes, "Oh, that's it." And so yeah, it was just uh, wow. Who the, came up with that now? Uh, the guys did. They came up. You know, they were they they thought of that of doing it that way, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, See, the yeah, thing is funny. that. The thing is that they, what they knew is that they knew where they wanted to shoot it. And it was, uh, it was somewhere in Burbank and one of the guys actually lived in the apartment. Yeah. It looks like somebody's apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the guys who, who was in the video, that's where he lived. So, and (laughs) so when, when, when it was pitched, it was like, then we'll go. There's no cuts, but we'll go from the alley into the apartment. And it turns out that they, you know, that's, this guy lived in an apartment, in an apartment building that was like on an alley. So that was all thought out. So what we did is basically just, we literally ran, you know, with a camera rolling from one Mm -hmm. location to the other. And it just seemed to work. Now, as far as, so as the levitation thing goes, uh, you know, we had a skeleton crew. It was a viral video crew. We stole the location. We didn't have any permits. Uh, mm-hmm. Command, I a, commando, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, commando. I brought a little step ladder from home, a little tiny step stepping stool. And, you know, when we were on one guy, the other guy was getting on the step ladder. But he was also, but he was, he was crouched down on it. Okay. So when he starts, like, rising up, you know, in the air... He's going, oh, I feel, I feel warm and I'm levitating, something like that. Right, right. And you see him, he's like, and, and, and then the other guy, Mikey, we, we pan to him and he's like, oh my God, put him down, put him down. <laughs> when we pan back, we're just seeing like this pair of feet, you know, we're oh, hearing him going, put me down, put me great. down, I don't like mm-hmm. this. And so while that's happening, he's actually running in back of the camera and he's climbing up on a half wall. And then he's jumping up onto the roof. Oh, he's very agile, very athletic. Wow, and, yeah. And he, he got onto the roof. And basically, well, by the time we panned over to the roof, he had just gotten up there. It, and, it, it uh, looks seamless. It really does. Yeah, it, it, it was seamless. And it's funny because I think we did four or five takes. Oh, my God. 
and in each take that worked fine. That was, yeah. um, we always did another take for, cause we wanted it to be, uh, shorter or move faster, but he got up there and that was always, uh, and every time we did one of those blame videos, we had to top the last one, which got, you know, increasingly difficult to do without any cuts. So that's it for part one of our interview with David Morgison. We'll do part two in a week and then be back with quote-unquote a normal podcast. You can reach Plot Points Podcast at plotpoints.com or by calling 919-SCRIPTS. That's 919-S-C-R-I-P-T-S. And don't forget to check OC Screenwriters and OC Film and TV websites and our meetup groups. Uh, you can find us just about anywhere on the Internet. I'm Mark Sevy. As always, be inspired. Do good work. Yeah.